Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to a special edition of The Fifth Column with me, Michael Moynihan, and a guest discussing Ukraine. Now, this is a topic we get a lot of email about, and some of it slightly hostile, always good-mannered, but slightly negative (laughs) about how I should say Matt and I think about Ukraine. You know, oftentimes making very good points and stuff we try to engage with, and I think we've had a pretty good and pretty open conversation about the conflict in Ukraine uh, since it started, and many more emails uh, coming from people who kind of generally agree with what they hear on this podcast about the war in Ukraine. But there's been a lot going on in Ukraine. So, you know, obviously you've heard about the much-anticipated counteroffensive, which may be underway now and may not be going so well. We don't know, and it's kind of hard to tell at the moment. And also some news about the Novokohovka Dam on the Dnipro River, which was apparently blown up. We don't know. But as we discussed the other night on a special dispatch for you subscribers, Tucker Carlson started his new show by uh, solving this mystery from the woods of Maine. He decided uh, that this was done by the Ukrainians, which doesn't make a ton of sense. But he said, you know, just trust him on this one. Um, Don't, because that looks kind of unlikely, but we don't know. That's the point, is we don't know. It's not what one thinks is true and one thinks is not true. So the best thing to do when you don't know is to ask somebody else who doesn't know, but somebody who is on the ground in Ukraine and actually in the flooded regions today and called me from the car. And that journalist is Tim Mack, somebody who I've known a bit over the years, um, has worked for Politico, The Daily Beast, NPR, but now has a substack and is living in Ukraine, rented an apartment there, and has a substack appropriately called The Counteroffensive. There'll be a link to that in the show notes, because uh, I'm sure you're going to want to go over there and read Tim's stuff. But so we talk about a number of things, broader issues about the Ukraine war, how it's covered, and how people see it in the United States and in a political and ideological way. So have a listen. We spoke for an hour and uh, about things that are going on now, things that have been going on in the past, uh, Tim's reporting technique, and why he decided to stay in Ukraine and not come back to the United States and work in D.C. covering boring politics again. Certainly not boring. So here's my discussion that I conducted earlier today with the journalist Tim Mack, who is reporting from Ukraine. We we, we know of new methods of attack. You were working for NPR. You were part of the layoffs. Uh, 10 or 15% of the workforce. About 10%, yeah. About 10%. Um, but you were in an interesting position because you arrived in Ukraine to do some reporting the day the war started or the day before? Yeah, so I arrived the night the the, the invasion started. So I, I got in February 23rd of 2022. And, and that was, you know, it, it was a weird time because if you remember, Western intelligence had, was just kind of banging on the drums and saying, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And then it kind of didn't happen for a week or 10 yeah. days. And so everyone was thinking, well, maybe it's not going to happen after all. So the night I arrived, I arrived on one of the last commercial flights into Ukraine um, from Istanbul. And and I kind of got in. I had a drink with a friend who had been a war correspondent who had covered at that point 16 wars and was about to discover his 17th. <laughs> and, and he would say, oh, it's not going to happen. Then I went to sleep, yeah. and at three o'clock in the morning, I get a call from my editor who says, 
you better get downstairs. Something's going on outside. Yeah. And uh, and that's how I got introduced to Ukraine. Um, but, was, but, and, and to be clear here, um, you do have a background as an army medic, which I, um, you know, and we've uh, we've come across each other and worked together in certain c- uh, capacities of daily abuse and stuff in the past. I didn't know you were an army medic. That uh, was news to me. Yeah, but, I actually um, joined the uh, I joined the army after the daily beast for an increase in my quality of life and work life balance. Is is that true? I mean, because you're, it's, wait, wait a second. Hold on, no, 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 this is, this is, I, but, no, but it sounds like it actually is plausible after <laughs> working at the Daily Beast when, um, well, actually Tina Brown was gone at that point. Um, but you're Canadian, aren't you? Well, I'm American now. I'm dual now. You are, oh, look um, at that. So Very I'm Canadian, American, Canadian, American, <laughs> and uh, now I'm in Ukraine. And, and a veteran, but you're also not a war correspondent. I mean, I remember you covering Congress. I mean, how did you kind of, did you kind of amble into being a war correspondent, or is that something that you were saying? Well, I need to do some more foreign affairs reporting. Well, I've always wanted to, to to be a war correspondent, and and you know, I mean, when when I looked around and I looked at all the folks who were doing really interesting national security mm-hmm. stuff, they'd all been war correspondents in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that was kind of the the generation above me of national yeah. security reporters. And I I kind of came in to journalism in two thousand nine, um, and it was you just kind of just missed yeah, that cycle. Right. Um, that by that point, uh, every newspaper in America had a really talented stable of very experienced war correspondents. Um, yeah. and they weren't going to send that this new kid out. And, yeah. um, so I spent, you know, I, I spent a lot of time covering national security for Politico, for the Daily Beast. Um, and I always wanted to do something like that, but I, I kind of almost made peace with the, with the notion that it, it just wasn't going to be a thing for me. And, when they, all of this started going off in Ukraine, NPR was looking around, and, and I was, I think it's fair to say that I was a, the only combat medic on staff as a correspondent, and, and so it made a lot of sense to include me in the rotation. And, and uh, accidentally, I found myself becoming a war correspondent. So the combat medic uh, background actually helped uh, deposit you in Ukraine when when nobody else would would go or there was yeah. nobody else um, obvious that, to, to send. Well, there so were, you're there. And they sent a lot of people without a combat medic background too. But yeah, it, yeah, I, I think it, it, yeah. you know, I mean, I think it it made a lot of sense to to include me because I you know because not only can I do the reporting but I also have to. The, the emergency medical background as well. Yeah, I mean, when I, I was, uh, I got to Ukraine about three weeks after the war started. Mm-hmm. And I think it was a couple of days before that, um, that a couple of guys that had worked for Vice and done stuff for Vice and everybody on the crew that I was with that was actually American knew them. Um, and I didn't actually, uh, were killed um, in an ambush uh, by uh, Russian soldiers and outside of Kiev. But so you got there and um, all hell is breaking loose. It's looking as if the Russians, as most most of us thought, and I think it was reasonable to think so at the time, that the Russian army was going to cut through Ukraine like a hot knife through butter. And they would take Kiev in a matter of hours, if not days. And that's where you were. I mean, what was the feeling like when you were there that this was, you were going to have to, you know, be in a place where presumably it was going to be overrun by Russian troops, you know, imminently, right? You know, there's there, uh, there's some some truth to the saying that calm before the storm, right? And, and because whenever there's a big event in Ukraine so far, there's always been this kind of moment of silence before. Really, like right now, the counteroffensive looks like it's getting underway in Ukraine. Yeah. 
in in uh in, in southern ukraine and and uh it was preceded by kind of a moment of silence where folks just suddenly shut their mouths um mm. on the on the day of the invasion i i walked around kiev and there was no one on the streets it was empty and and, and kiev is normally a very bustling city very cosmopolitan place and there's no, there's virtually no one out there um mm. and it felt so quiet and eerie and distant um because i think everyone was in shock and yeah. uh everyone was trying to figure out what to do um and and that was my introduction to kiev and and, and to ukraine so when you're let's talk there's a couple of things that i think that for our listeners would be um, interesting to discuss and it's you know one of those is how people in the united states to a lesser extent western europe but in the united states and even canada view the war um, view the West's involvement in the war. And I'm kind of interested in how Ukrainians see this too. So, I mean, you have something like I sent you last night, I texted you, um, the first episode of Tucker Carlson's Twitter show. Totally deranged. Of course, totally deranged. So, yeah, we did an episode on this and, and it is deranged on about a hundred levels, but it starts with a long extended rant, uh, about Ukraine about President Zelensky and about the explosion, the sabotage of the dam. And it basically says, and this is very common on the right these days, um, that Zelensky is a, is a sleazeball, a rat-faced, I think is what he said, which yeah. sounds slightly anti-Semitic to me, but that's just me. Um, and that this was clearly the work of Ukraine and everything that bad that is happening in Ukraine is the fault of Ukraine. There's a very, very dominant narrative on the American right and particularly on the populist right today. I mean, what do you make of this, you know, surprising turn from conservatives to sort of lurching towards Putin apologia in some sense, mm -hmm. but also just maybe I'm on the other side of Joe Biden and that's the good place to be. Well, you know, I, there was an interesting moment where I, I last year I took a, a, a brief break from Ukraine and I went back to um, to Texas because one of the, one of the beats I had done for NPR was um, was cover the NRA and, and gun issues. So I mm -hmm. attended the NRA convention in Houston and Donald Trump was speaking and he was talking about guns as you'd expect and he was talking about the Second Amendment mm -hmm. um, and he got polite applause on all of the above. But the thing that he got the biggest round of applause for was a totally um uh, incidental comment that he made promising that if he were ever elected again he would immediately end aid to ukraine and this has become just like a huge huge thing and and even a, a, a i would say like a dominate dominating motivating uh force on the right nowadays is is to end this aid even though you know, as as a you know, we, we we can talk for ages about you know the the primary drivers of America's debt and 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 spending. It's not foreign aid, and it's not it's not really you know spending on the on the war in Ukraine. Um, but it's me. It's become this real motivating thing for folks on the right. Why do you think that is? I mean, I've been trying to figure this out and. You know, Tucker Carlson, for instance, I mean, it's not a kind of, well, I think we're probably spending too much. It seems like this kind of thunderous, you know, these are the bad guys in Ukraine. <clears throat> so many people on the kind of libertarian, I wouldn't say libertarian middle, but the kind of libertarian right and libertarian left mm -hmm. uh, seem to have an enormous issue 
with the government in Kiev and also seem to believe that Zelensky is one of the uh, worst leaders in the world. And, you know, I've people that I've never, ever heard talk about even foreign policy, yeah. um, NATO-splaining um, what happened in 1991 and uh, the Budapest Memorandum and, you know, not yeah. an inch to the east and everything. And so everyone's kind of engaged in this, but I think it's for odd reasons. I mean, why do you think that people are so obsessed with this one position, not even this one issue, but the position on this issue? Uh, I think a number of things. One is it that it breaks with the bipartisan foreign policy consensus in Washington, D.C., which a lot of populists just resent and hate viscerally, right? Yeah. That there are, that there's this middle, there's this very meaty middle composed of both Republicans and, and Democrats, which support, generally speaking, you know, a, a strong NATO, free trade, and, and, and basics like this that have made up the consensus yeah. uh, on, on, on both left and right for decades and decades and decades. But um, Donald Trump has smashed that. And, and everyone from the MAGA folks to the dirtbag left are they just uh, they resent they're not part of that decision making process in some ways they're on the outside of that I think um, uh, but they have I mean like and, and but they also have some um, uh, some criticisms that that ring true that when when people sure. yes. that when people agree too much um, mm -hmm. and power becomes too concentrated for too long uh, it's inevitable that there are there are going to be uh, some disagreements or, or, or some mistakes. Yeah, um, but I think, I think it's about power. I mean, I think it's fundamentally about where does power lie and populism using populism traditionally using these, you know, quote unquote elites as a punching bag um, on foreign policy. That's what we're seeing here on Ukraine. That, I mean, and there's a certain logic to it too. I mean, there's a, that makes a certain amount of sense of elites in foreign policy who have made, catastrophic decisions over the past 50 years not all of them but 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 a lot of them and I, you know i'm perfectly happy to have that debate about um america's level of support for the government in ukraine um the debate that i'm less willing to have is who's responsible for this and it's the ukrainians uh that yeah. seems completely bizarre well, I, to me well, well something you know? that really really terribly undercuts that narrative and 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 that argument i think is that when America's giving Ukraine military aid, it's not giving cash. It's actually giving old equipment. Um, and one thing that's really missed in the conversation of, uh, of Ukraine receiving all this equipment, all these uh, armored vehicles or whatever else, is that it's old stuff that America's mm -hmm. then using to modernize its own military. Um, so the folks who uh, are, are kind of uh, shutting about America first. Basically, what's happening is, uh, you know, we're going down to the thrift store and handing off our old items and purchasing new, uh, all new uh, military <laughs> hardware yeah. for America's military um, and using what's happening in Eastern Europe right now as, as a way to kind of amp up and, and, and modernize uh, our own forces. I want to get to the more specifics um, uh, of your reporting, but before we do that, I, one more thing on this issue. I mean, one of the lines used to shut down, not even say shut down debate, but people believe that it is uh, a trump card in the debate, is to say that America, Western Europe, their funding of Ukraine, the support for Ukraine is essentially 
you know, really blithely risking World War III or nuclear conflict. Um, I don't think I go a day without hearing that. I mean, I hear it so frequently that it's kind of exhausting yeah. because the argument never goes further than that. It's speculative and, yeah. and there's not a lot behind it. I mean, is that a conversation that you hear in Ukraine? I mean, obviously they're on the front lines of this and they are yeah. in battle with a nuclear power and they were going to be the third largest nuclear power in the world after the fall of the Soviet Union and then negotiated those weapons away. I mean, what is the conversation like in Ukraine on this issue? I think they'd welcome opening new fronts all all, <laughs> all around <laughs> Russia, right? I don't think that I don't think that that concerns them quite so much, yeah. actually. Um, but look, they've been. They, uh, I think you have to look at when you look at that argument. Oh well, helping Ukraine means inviting World War Three. Mm. Um, you ask, okay, well, so if if that's the case, then what do you want? What would be the appropriate step? And the appropriate step always seems to be from that logic is Ukraine must concede all of its territory and uh, surrender to the Russians. And then, of course, we will not have World War III because there will be no Ukraine and there will be no mm -hmm. conflict whatsoever. Um, Which you keep doing, by the way, until the and, Russians are, you know, on, on you yes. know, the cliffs of Dover or something until <laughs> you just concede because they have nuclear weapons, right? Um, yes. And, and you know, there, there's been a lot of thunderous threatening by the Russians about the use of uh, strategic or or tactical nuclear weapons but there's a, mm -hmm. they have to they have to have a certain sort of logic whether you agree with their actions or not and I certainly don't they have to have a certain at least claimed logic to to what they do and it would be a mm -hmm. strategic disaster and I think Putin knows it to, to employ nuclear weapons in in Ukraine it would isolate them absolutely even from their closest friends and it would mean that the whole international community would feel a need to get involved, which I don't think Russia really wants at this moment. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, it would it would dramatically change the whole paradigm and yeah. in a way that puts Russia as the main target for virtually every country in the world. Um Let's talk about something that's in the news cycle right now. I mean, you're you're in the middle of this, and you're in Kiev right now, I assume, right? I, I'm down. I'm down further south in in Dnipro. Oh, okay. Um, because oh, you're we're, in Dnipro we're, now. Okay. We're, we're we're reporting on the consequences of of the dam uh, of the collapse dam. and um, yeah, yeah. and and what's happening further south along the river in in Kherson. Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, Kherson was um, occupied by the Russians, I think the largest city that was occupied by the Russians, and then taken back by the Ukrainians, and now um, essentially underwater. Um, tell us a little bit about, before we get into any speculation, um, which is the, the stupid sport of the day in the United States of who was responsible for this, but talk a little bit about the consequences of this. I mean, for Ukrainians, which is what you can see. I mean, you can't see this on the Russian side, but what is it like, um, you know, traveling through these regions now, um, after this dam collapse? I mean, where, where do I start it? So, so the publication that, that I, that I founded, the counteroffensive really focuses on human narrative, right? We try to use the tools mm. of fiction, storytelling, and, and we apply it to nonfiction, right? So uh, so each of our stories around the news revolve around, a, what start with and revolve around a single person at how they experience the news. So today, yeah. as we're looking at the consequences of the dam collapse, we're looking at a woman named Anna. And she is a is an English teacher who lives in Kherson. And we, we talked with her, me and my Ukrainian reporting partner, Ross Pelag, we talked to her about um, what it was like to be under occupation, occupation, as opposed to what it's like now to be in a city that's flooding, 
And she, she kind of talked about this sort of mental oppression and repression that happened under occupation that she considered considerably, considerably worse than, mm. than the physical terror of, um, of what's happening today. That her son has gone through so much over the last year and change. Mm. And, uh, they, they've, they've dealt that, that in a way that when this, that when this dam breached, um, they were totally ready for, you know, another slap in the face, right? That, yeah. um, the, 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 the dam breaching actually is kind of a, a nightmare that has been talked about a lot among the residents yeah, of Harzan yeah. in the past. Um, mm-hmm. it, it was one of those kind of boogeymen that they, that they would tell, that, that they would tell kids about. Like, hey, hey, you better behave or else that big bad dam is going to breach, you know? <laughs> like, they, they would have, you know, it's like in California where they would have earthquake drills. They would have drills yeah. about flooding because of the, you know, a, a possible disaster with the dam. What's happening today is is the realization of some terrible, terrible nightmare that has been years and years in the making. The worst case scenario for her son, and it, it's a it's a it's a terrible scenario in a number of ways. Economically, I mean, the Dnipro River. It's hard to understate how important this river is to the economic history uh, and yes, cultural yeah. life of this country. That seventy percent of this country gets their fresh water from this river. That that it's how uh, people uh, transport goods. It's how they they survive through potable water. It's how, um, for many years, the country was divided between West and East, linguistically, but along the Dnipro River. So that's, this dam uh, is more than just a... Well, this episode's an hour, but this is just a little bit, 10, 15 minutes, I don't know, something short. Uh, to hear the rest, in which we get into much more detail, um, less about uh, Tim's life and, and uh, more about what's happening in Ukraine, uh, go over to wethefifth.substack.com and get the rest of it. It doesn't cost you much, and there's, I think, like almost 200 other episodes. This is episode 170, but there's a bunch of other stuff too. So there's probably other 200 episodes that you can listen to. Uh, nobody needs that much of me or Matt or Camille But, uh, you know, maybe there's going to be another pandemic and you're going to be stuck in the house and you need something to listen to. 170 episodes of us. (laughs) You've got to be kidding me. All right. Go subscribe. If you don't, I'll be really mad. And uh, my daughter might starve. So if if you're fine with that, fine. Okay.